Welcome to Conversations in Business with RSM, where we talk to business leaders and experts to gain valuable insights that will help you move your business forward. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Conversations in Business with RSM South Africa. My name is Henk Heimans. I am the Head of Audit for Quality and Risk in RSM South Africa. With me today is Michael Juden. In this conversation in business, we are going to talk about some aspects of corporate governance that we have encountered in our professional careers. Michael is a very experienced legal practitioner in South Africa. Just a bit of his background, he was admitted to practice in Johannesburg during 1969 already. He has had extensive experience in local and international commercial transactions and disputes. He's a member of the main King Committee. The King Committee is the committee that um, issued the authoritative documentation and reports on corporate governance in South Africa. He chaired the King Committee subcommittee that wrote the chapter for King 3, dealing with negotiation, mediation and arbitration. And he was also a member of the task team which wrote King 4, the fourth version of the King Report. He's a director of and legal advisor to the American Chamber of Commerce, known as AmCham in South Africa. Michael is also the co-chairman of the Corporate Governance International Development Subcommittee of the American Bar Association's Business Law Section, the International Bar Association, and an associate member of the American Bar Association. So a very experienced legal practitioner that is going to share his views with us. Good morning, Michael, and thank you very much for joining us again. Good morning, Hank, and thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, Michael, we're going to talk today about corporate governance, and particularly the topic that comes up often is Section 66 of the Companies Act. Now, I'm just going to recap because not everyone has their Companies Act in front of them. Section 66 of the Companies Act says that the business and affairs of a company must be managed by or under the direction of its board, which has the authority to exercise all of the powers and perform any of the functions of the company. And then it goes on about the powers and the functions and memorandum of incorporation, etc. I'm not going to go into that right now, but just to focus quickly on the company is managed by or under direction of a board of direct, uh, directors, which has the authority to exercise powers and perform any of the functions. Now, what we find often, certainly in our practice, is multinational companies set up a presence in South Africa. And of course, we welcome that and we appreciate that if multinational companies uh, set up presence in South Africa and want to do business with us. And normally the, the, the way that they set it up is by establishing a South African subsidiary. So they would set up a South African subsidiary of the global company. And obviously the South African subsidiary is registered in terms of our South African Companies Act. So no matter where the holding company is based, the South African company is bound by our local act. In establishing the company, they might put in place a local director or a local board of directors. Sometimes what happens is maybe just one director and the other directors are representatives from the 
from the overseas entity. So that why they don't, that, that's why they don't have necessarily a majority of local directors. Sometimes they don't even have local directors. The company is managed from overseas by overseas board of directors. So they put in place uh, the correct documents, for example, a memorandum of incorporation, or there could be rules or a shareholders agreement or something like that. They put in place documents that give the local directors certain rights and responsibilities, and that can also limit the rights and responsibilities. So first of all, Michael, the question that I want to understand is, we can understand that companies put in place restrictions as to what the local directors are allowed to do. Is it possible, is it, is it actually legal for them to restrict what the directors are allowed to do in South Africa? Is it legal? Remember, we are under the South African Companies Act. Can a company in, let's say, Germany put in place uh, restrictions that mean that the directors can't do certain things. We've got to understand that they want to protect their interests, but is it legal in South Africa? Thanks, Hank. Well, as you correctly say, it's a problem which we all face. I face it all the time with my international clients and their local subsidiaries or their local branches. So as you correctly said, Section 66 says the business and affairs of the company are managed by or under the direction of the board, underlined board, which has the authority to exercise all the powers and perform any of the functions. There is an exception to 60, section 66, uh, subparagraph one, which says, except to the extent that this act or the company's memorandum of incorporation provides otherwise. So you can, in the MOI, limit the powers of the board in the memorandum of incorporation. Also, what the multinational companies often do is they put in levels of authority. The problem is that when their levels of authority are such that in truth and in fact, the powers of the local director are no more than an employee and the company, the local subsidiary, is in fact managed by the shareholder which is normally the international group who are 100% owners of the shares, then the problem is that the company is, strict, uh, strictly speaking, in breach of Section 66 because now the business and affairs of the company are not managed under the direction of the board. And the board does not have the authority to exercise the powers and perform the functions of the company. And it's a big problem for you as auditors when you're doing the audit, yes. because the company is now in breach of a section of the Companies Act. And then of course, it's up to your, uh, the, your as auditors to, to make a decision whether this is a reportable offense or not. So it often causes huge tension between the international group and the local subsidiary or branch because they need to understand that they cannot, as a shareholder, manage the company through restrictions in the MRI and all levels of authority because that breaches Section 66. So now that we've identified the problem, what's the solution? So as you know, our Companies Act does not require that any of the directors need to be locals. 
So they can appoint all international directors to the board. And of course, there doesn't have to be a local shareholder. All of the shareholders also can be international. The only requirement which falls outside of this discussion is that the company needs a public officer who is a local South African resident. So if the international company wishes to comply with Section 66, then all of the directors need to be the international directors, and they would then manage it in a way which meets the requirements of the international group. But they can't appoint a director and then limit that person or turn that person, in truth and in fact, into an employee by levels of authority and restrictions which render that director unable to comply with Section 66.1. And as you correctly identified, it's a huge problem with subsidiary companies, branch companies of multinationals. Okay, okay. Thanks, Michael. You've actually preempted my next question because what I wanted to ask you as well was if it's legal for a South African company director not to be a South African citizen. And you answered that already. It is not necessary for the director to be a South African citizen. They can they can actually appoint all the directors from the overseas board to the South African board, then they are fully in control of the South African company board. And that's absolutely fine. The only thing uh, I just want to emphasize what Michael said, that the company must have a public officer. That is for tax purposes. Company must have a public officer that is a resident in South Africa. So that's the only thing, but that's not a director. That's a separate thing. Now that leads me to the next question, Michael. Let's say we do have a South African person. I've seen that in small entities where they set up a South African office, but the South African office is really only, let's say, a sales office just to make sales. Or it could be a, a customer support office, or it could be a maybe just a distribution of spares. They've already made the sales, big expensive machines sold overseas, and they need a local person who is an engineer or a local expert. Let's carry on with that analogy, a local engineer who knows the product very well. So they appoint this engineer as a director. They make him a director, but his only responsibility is to look after the product. So he's got no other responsibility, uh, like strategic responsibilities, finance, nothing. They say to him, you are our production engineer or our product engineer or whatever you want to call it. And uh, all you do is look after the product and provide support and maintenance and spare parts to our customers in South Africa. We don't want you to get involved with strategy or anything else. And for that, we make him a director. Therefore, we've got someone on the letterhead. He's even a public officer. Would that be okay? Can they do that? Just have a director, but their only responsibilities are to provide support, let's say. It's an excellent example that you've given, Hank, because it's something that occurs so often. And in the case which you've outlined so eloquently, it's an absolute breach of Section 66.1 because the business and affairs of that company are not managed by that local director. And in fact, he is an employee as a result of levels of authority or restrictions in the MOI, which don't allow the operate the business and affairs of the company to be managed by or under direction of the board. So when the 
the section talks about except to the extent that the, the act or the company's memorandum provides otherwise, you can have certain limitations in the memorandum, but the effect of them can't be, nor can the effect of the levels of authority be, that the result of this is that the shareholders are managing the company and the directors are rendered powerless. So in that case, in a situation like that, we recommend to the company that they appoint one of their international directors to the board. And that engineer, in your example, is appointed as a general manager, exercises no powers of a director or a prescribed officer, and is merely an employee discharging the duties which you outlined. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. Um, my reason for that question, as you know, been by now, it was a leading question because it leads me into the next question. Um, I have once been involved in an arbitration case where a director was appointed as a marketing director in South Africa. The reason why they appointed that director is he happens to be a very well-known international cricket player. A South African cricket player, but he's very well known. Obviously, as a result of his fame, he has connections that would be very useful to this company. Um, the company then made some mistakes in terms of labor law. They didn't apply the local labor law correctly and went to an arbitration. And the defense of the director was how am I supposed to know? I am only a cricket player. I've been appointed here for my skills as a former cricket player. How am I supposed to know that in South African labor law, you need to comply with certain provisions before you can retrench people? How would I know? Can the director use that as a defense? Because obviously being a well-known international cricket player, probably qualifies him for a position in uh, PR, but does it qualify him to be a director? Can he say, oh, sorry, I didn't know. I, I didn't know. I have to, um, I'm just a cricket player. You all know I'm just a cricket player. Thank you raise a very good point. In a leading case in Australia, um, which sent uh, reverberations around the world when the judgment was delivered, and resulted in many people um, going back to English literature and asked, saying to themselves, above all else, and to thine own self be true, and asked the question, should I be sitting on the board? The judge in that case, the case which is known as the Centro case, we'll leave the facts out for the moment, but the judge in that judgment, the defence when the directors were sued, was I was appointed to the board for particular skills not for my financial ability, which I don't have. And as a result of a huge fraud, which resulted in the company uh, going into liquidation and huge losses suffered, the judge said that that is absolutely no excuse and it's a position in our law as well. A director need not have the same expertise in finances as the financial director or the same expertise as the director who looks after the digital world. The director has to have a general knowledge and understanding of all aspects of the business. As a director, you can't, you're not in a cubbyhole, in a compartment. You need to have an understanding of all of the business affairs of the company, which would include an understanding of labor. 
Okay. And it is, of course, possible for him to get assistance. That's why he can employ an HR manager or he can consult with an HR, uh, an HR practitioner and the company will should assist him in doing that and should help him to, to source the necessary, uh, the necessary uh, skills and expertise. But uh, as, as you rightly said, he's not expected to necessarily be an expert in, in labor law, but he needs to be able to have that general understanding. Now, I think this discussion has probably scared a lot of directors because uh, you can see it is a very heavy burden that is on the shoulders of the directors. Now, I'm thinking of a solution. What if we maybe uh, just appoint a general manager in South Africa? So we have a holding company managing director. In South Africa, we simply manage the company by a general manager. We don't call him a director. We call him a country manager, but he's not recorded at SIPC. Uh, he does get the, all the benefits of a director. He attends all the meetings. It's just not called board meetings. It's called management meetings. He attends the meetings. He sets the strategy. He sees the clients. He drives the company car. He gets the nice parking, the corner office, but he is not called a director. Does that give us a way out? Because that way, we don't need to disclose the salary. Um, they are not going to be responsible. Does that give us a way out if we don't register them as a director with SIPC? Okay, so the Companies Act defines a director and registration of CIPC is not necessary to be deemed to be a director of the company. We also need to be careful that he is he or she, I'm going to refer to he, uh, but he or she does not fall within the definition of a prescribed officer. So the liability attaches, as you know, to a director, a prescribed officer, and a committee member, the member of any committee. So he would attract liability as a member of a committee. He would attract liability if he performs the duties which fall within the description of a prescribed officer, or if he carries on his affairs as if he were a director of the company, then he would fall within the definition of a director in terms of the act. So you would have to be very careful that he is simply an employee and not fall, doesn't fall within the description of a committee member, prescribed officer, or director. So your structure could be holding company internationally, holding 100% of the shares, your board, local board, international nominees, directors of the international company, a local public officer, South African citizen to discharge the tax, obligations and requirements in terms of that legislation. And this person as an employee with an employment contract acting as a general manager, that structure doesn't fall foul of section 66 and doesn't attract any liability for the individual. But the moment that individual strays into a committee member, a prescribed officer or a director, then he has all of the liability in terms of the act. Great. Okay. Thanks, Michael. And thanks for that uh, solution that you offer as well. The appropriate structure, as Michael said, therefore does not attract unnecessarily unnecessary liability, but more importantly, it ensures that there are no gaps left in the corporate governance structure of the entity. Corporate governance is about governing, managing the company responsibly, correctly, legally, 
and we need the appropriate structure in place to ensure that no gaps are left. If you have a gap, for example, a director who is only a director in name or someone who is not a director in name but he fulfills the duties, there are gaps in the corporate governance process and it leaves a governance gap and it leaves us open for mistakes, contraventions of legislation or, or even financial losses. Um, I hope that you learned out of this uh, out of this discussion. I hope it was useful to you. It has certainly helped me a lot. So thank you very much, Michael, for your comments uh, and thank you for participating. That was Conversations in Business with RSM. Experience the power of being understood. Experience RSM. Visit rsmza.co.za.